Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this BJOG podcast. Very grateful to be joined today by uh, Mr. Siasakos, Demetrius Siasakos, who's a senior lecturer and consultant obstetrician at the Southmead Hospital in Bristol and is one of the editors uh, for the themed issue on stillbirth. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mr. Siasakos. Thank you. Just to kick off, I wondered if we could uh, talk first of all about what the need was for a special themed issue on this important topic of stillbirth and why the BJOG have uh, chosen to dedicate a, uh, an issue to this topic. Stillbirth is a very important uh, issue for maternity care mm-hmm. and that's exactly why it has been chosen as an indicator of progress towards the sustainable development goals. Um, the issue with stillbirth is that rates seem to be unacceptably high uh, across the world and particularly in the UK. Mm. Even though there have been recent improvements, the rates are not as low as they could and should be. My, my understanding is there's a paper in this in this issue saying that our rates just lag behind uh, Latvia in Europe. Is that right? So, in fact, there is a paper um, comparing rates of stillbirth across Europe using mm-hmm. 2010 uh, data mm-hmm. uh, with and without terminations. And if you look at the 2010 data for mm-hmm. stillbirth after 24 weeks, uh, if you exclude terminations, the rates of stillbirth in England... And, top, and in Scotland are only second worst in, indeed above Latvia. Oh. All the other countries in Europe uh, have lower stillbirth rates. Right. Things have improved since, but uh, still the rates are unacceptably high. Uh-huh. Clearly stillbirth has got massive psychological as well as socioeconomic uh, ramifications. Um, and I know there's one, one, one paper in the issue that, that talks specifically about the socio-economic cost of stillbirth. I wondered if you could um, take us through that paper and, and the importance of, of that study. It is indeed the paper by Campbell and colleagues, and they have shown that the mean health and social care costs per stillbirth were uh, more than £4,000, and that's per stillbirth. Uh, and across the UK... Um, the total costs were uh, more than 700 million, which is a huge cost. And considering that they could could not actually capture the full cost of stillbirth to society, Mm -hmm. uh, be that economic cost, but also there is a wider uh, uh, psychological and socio-economic cost that goes beyond pounds, and they were not able to capture all uh, all these costs with their modeling. Uh, You can actually appreciate then... uh, what every single stillbirth means to society. It has a huge impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I will say something here, actually. Um, uh, I have a colleague of mine who once was examined for her thesis, and she was told that, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be investing in maternity care research because, after all, babies do not pay taxes. But you know something? Babies do not pay taxes if they are stillborn, or if they're not born healthy. Mm-hmm. But actually, healthy babies make healthy adults mm-hmm. that become extremely productive later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a productivity that is lost. What is also lost is the, pro- the full productivity of the rest of the family. Yeah. And we know that the impact of stillbirth is huge, including on surviving uh, 
siblings, uh, including on surviving twins when one of them dies. So, so clearly it has a, a huge uh, economic as well as an emotional impact on, on, on families and on wider society. And there's also um, quite steep uh, clinical negligence costs associated uh, with stillbirth um, uh, in, in the NHS. Um, and uh, the authors of, uh, of uh, that paper on um, uh, the costs associated with stillbirth make, make the point that it's important to determine how much it costs uh, in order to uh, improve research and access to research grants to, uh, to improve uh, rates of, of, of stillbirth. In fact, we can turn the whole issue on its head and say that Remember that stillbirth is an indicator of care and progress towards sustainable uh-huh. development goals. Actually, if we try to target by showing the cost, the huge cost of stillbirth, and by developing and discussing, uh, including today, interventions to reduce yeah. the impact of stillbirth, we may also reduce the impact of brain injury, for example. Uh-huh. Um, and that will be the wider benefit to society by discussing stillbirth, is that we may actually prevent brain injury as well. Uh-huh. As, as well as um, efforts to try and improve care to reduce stillbirth, uh, this issue also tackles the important point of getting a timely diagnosis of uh, stillbirth and managing the stillbirth appropriately and making sure that proper aftercare is arranged for the woman. So uh, that's dealt with uh, in your paper, Mr. Siasakos. All bereaved parents are entitled to good care after stillbirth, a mixed methods multi-centre study. So I wonder if you could um, talk briefly about what you found in that investigation looking at the care of women who've had the uh, tragic event of a stillbirth. So the INSIGHT study team uh, examined the care that was given to women who presented initially with symptoms related to a possible stillbirth and eventually the diagnosis of stillbirth. And what we found is that every case was different, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the problem was because every case was different, then the care that was delivered to these parents was not consistent. Uh it is imperative uh, for society and particularly for healthcare uh, to devise systems and training for staff to support parents when they experience symptoms related to a possible stillbirth and eventually stillbirth so that they all receive appropriate care, Mm -hmm. even if their case might be different to the previous or the next person. And that's something that clearly we have not done very well, and that's exactly what the paper shows. We, we could and should improve. What were some of the shortcomings in, in care that you identified in that paper? Uh, so starting from the symptoms uh, related to stillbirth, some of the symptoms, one of the most common uh, ones being uh, reduced vital movements, mm-hmm. uh, was the problem that there wasn't a, a specific pathway um, to direct both the parents who experienced the complaint, the reduced fetal movements, but also the staff who were looking after them either by uh, either on the phone um, or in person. So there wasn't a specific pathway and specific guidance as to how they should be managing those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that resulted in a lot of frustration and often in, in very long delays before even the diagnosis was made. Uh, so a lot of unnecessary stress and what I call preventable harm, you see. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with stillbirth is that there is a lot of preventable harm because we could and should be reducing the rate of stillbirth. But 
for those timbers that still might happen, we really need to improve gear afterwards and make sure it's consistent and of uh, a good quality. One of the issues that you brought out in that uh, manuscript was that um, parents often aren't given any kind of say about the mode of delivery and a lot of parents, a lot of mothers may, may request a, a caesarean section and uh, th- that request isn't sort of well understood by, by staff. Is that, is that right? And that's why there was a lot of uh, frustration uh, expressed by parents in the inside study. And also, if you look at the quotes by parents and staff relevant to the mode of birth after the diagnosis of stillbirth, uh, you will see that uh, there were lots of unnecessary misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. If we don't understand why parents may be asking for a cesarean section in the first place, we'll never be able actually to reach a joint decision. Mm-hmm. So I think the problem is that often, uh, and in general, but specifically with bereaved parents, uh, we are actually on the same side of the consultation table. We shouldn't be considering that we are on uh, opposing uh, sides of the table we should be making decisions together uh-huh. to be able to make those decisions together we need to understand where they're coming from before we explain the medical perspective because there are always two sides to any story mm-hmm. and that includes mode of birth mm-hmm. clearly parents want for example a cesarean section sometimes because it's their initial reaction because they want to avoid uh, the experience of labor but sometimes it may be just fear of childbirth mm-hmm. and we know that fear of childbirth can be very significant for a live birth. So uh-huh. you can imagine how much worse it can become for a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the appropriate reaction by a trained healthcare staff member uh, when faced with a request for a cesarean section might not be to discuss, oh, it's not good for your future pregnancy uh-huh. because it increases the risk of stillbirth. It might be to sit down with the parent and make a new birth plan that will actually alleviate some of those fears. I see. We know that partners, particularly male partners, when faced with a stillbirth, uh, want to be involved more in care, including by performing practical tasks. Uh-huh. So by involving both parents and by assigning specific practical tasks to the partner, instead of having a protective partner that, and there is a quote, in fact, in Inside Study, that w- would have paid to have a cesarean section, instead of then opposing that desire for a cesarean section, involving them in practical tasks relevant to vaginal birth, might be the way that they will actually appreciate the support, they will feel supported enough to go through the process of labour and vaginal birth. I see. So this should be a shared journey between um, uh, the parents and and the healthcare professionals looking after them. Um, One of the other issues you mentioned was um, some lack of consistency or training around uh, taking consent for post-mortems. And I think you concluded that our training needs to be improved around uh, post-mortems? Starting by having training in the first place. (laughs) So the first step in improvement will be to actually have consistent training in taking Uh post-mortem across the UK and in fact globally as well. And and I say globally because it's not just about the UK. And what post-mortem investigations, including the post-mortem examination of the fetus, are available will differ from country to country. But it is really important that uh, healthcare staff are trained to discuss the investigations that are available with parents Uh so that parents can make an appropriate choice. Uh And again, there are quotes that demonstrate that this training was not in place or if it was in place, it wasn't successful. I see, I see. 
Thank you. So um, just staying with the important issue of a parent's journey after the tragic event of a stillbirth, we've got a, another excellent article in this themed issue uh, by Gravenseat et al. on healthcare utilisation, induced labour and C-section uh, in the pregnancy after a stillbirth. This is a, a prospective study. Um, and, and the study shows that women uh, who've had a previous stillbirth are more likely to have a caesarean section as their mode of delivery and more likely to have a, an early induction of labour. So I wondered if you could talk more about the um, care of uh, pregnant women who've had a previous stillbirth and how this can be best managed. Yes, and indeed, this is a very interesting article, again, of almost uh, a thousand, uh, in fact, just over 900 pregnant women, comparing practices after a stillbirth and after a live birth in subsequent pregnancies. And it, it, it was interesting in showing something that everyone suspected, is that they are more likely to have mm. some sort of intervention, the main intervention is being induced labor early, uh-huh. and a cesarean section, either elective or even emergency cesarean section. And the article is interesting, particularly combined with other several interesting articles in the same issue, showing that intervention in a pregnancy and close monitoring have been associated with low rates of stillbirth uh, in, for example, a private setting in Australia, uh-huh. in some provinces in uh, South Africa. And, and also in uh, sub-Saharan Africa as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but the main issue, you see, with the management of pregnancy, either the first pregnancy or even subsequent pregnancy, once someone has already experienced a stillbirth, mm-hmm. is when and why to intervene. Mm-hmm. And as Gordon Smith very well argues in his paper, we don't really know when and why to intervene. That's um, the, the Gordon Smith uh, editorial, should we implement universal screening with late pregnancy ultrasound to prevent stillbirth, isn't it? In, indeed, and uh, Professor Smith starts by discussing uh, ultrasound as a screening tool uh-huh. and then goes beyond to discuss screening uh, in pregnancy in general. And my take from all the papers that we have included in the themed issue is that That is why it is really important to examine not just stillbirth rates alone, but also perinatal mortality in general, so that includes neonatal mortality as well, Mm -hmm. so whether the baby is likely to die uh, whilst receiving neonatal care Uh in an intensive care unit, for example, but also perinatal morbidity, so whether Mm -hmm. the baby is likely to have any other serious health problems uh, beyond stillbirth. And balancing the two... Uh, is not easy. Yeah. So, for example, if we were if we started tomorrow delivering all babies globally at 24 weeks, uh, that would be an easy way to reduce the rate of stillbirth to zero. Uh-huh. Uh, but that would have huge implications in terms of morbidity and mortality. I see. So it's a balance between sort of active intervention uh, and also making sure that we don't deliver uh, babies with a, a big burden of prematurity, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, thank you. So um, there's a, a series of papers in this themed issue, which you've made reference to already, which look at um, ways in which we may seek to reduce stillbirth rates and um, uh, schedules of antenatal care that may be associated with 
lower rates of stillbirth. There's an interesting paper looking at schedules of antenatal care in South Africa, um, which showed in uh, two provinces where they'd reduced antenatal care schedules, um, there was a spike in stillbirth rates at 38 weeks, in contrast to uh, another province which had maintained uh, a higher intensity of antenatal surveillance. So I wondered if you could discuss uh, that interesting article. I think what the article shows uh, is that even though we don't have yet the ideal screening tools to detect those pregnancies Mm -hmm. that need early delivery, clearly we need to make sure that we see women uh, throughout pregnancy and we see them regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know, for example, that women who book uh, late uh, for pregnancy care or who do not frequently attend uh, for antenatal care in pregnancy are more likely to have adverse outcomes and as shown by this excellent paper, mm-hmm. stillbirth is one of those bad outcomes that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, when we know that women not attending care uh, might be detrimental to uh, the health of their baby, um, not being able to offer even that care um, is clearly not contributing uh, to a system of close monitoring and support. Uh-huh. Let me go beyond this paper again uh-huh. and on to the papers in the theme this that discuss subsequent pregnancies. And the reason why I will do that is because it's not just about close monitoring to identify the need for early intervention. It's also because women may need closer support. So you see the problem with pregnancies, subsequent pregnancies after stillbirth, the and the reason why there is increased intervention uh, might be the psychological element. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for example, by framing a, a subsequent pregnancy as high risk, we might be increasing the rate of intervention. Yeah. Just by framing uh, the pregnancy as high risk, because we, are, we must be increasing anxiety for women by, by framing a subsequent pregnancy high risk. Um, and I think that paper on subsequent pregnancy after stillbirth makes the point that anxiety may, may not only be present, understandably, in the parents, but also in the healthcare providers as well. As you said, understandably. Yeah. And therefore, framing a subsequent pregnancy as closer care pregnancy, higher intensity of care pregnancy, mm-hmm. we need to use a different term. Mm. And the use of different terms, while still providing that system of support... Yeah with medical intervention when needed, but also psychological support. So by having available a bereavement lead, extra uh, counseling, for example, to support women and parents generally in future pregnancy. So if we provide that system of support whilst using a different term as opposed to high risk, Mm -hmm. we may actually uh, avoid the unnecessary increase in rates of intervention. I see. As one of the papers in the theme issue clearly shows, the paper by uh, Malakova and uh, colleagues, they meta-analyzed uh, 17 studies of mm-hmm. uh, pregnancies. This uh, is uh, risk of stillbirth, preterm <coughs> delivery and fetal growth restriction following exposure in a previous birth, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And they have looked at the number of conditions that are associated with problems with the placenta. Mm-hmm. And we know that problems with the placenta is really one of the areas that we should be focusing. Uh, 
perhaps as opposed to just focusing on sleep practices, um, particularly in high-income countries. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this paper clearly shows that if there is a problem with the placenta in one pregnancy, a problem with the placenta meaning a preterm birth or a small for gestational age baby, mm-hmm. then women are more likely to have the same or another problem with the placenta in a future pregnancy. I.e. still stillbirth. Including stillbirth. Including stillbirth. Um, and I so, think the paper shows that the earlier the age of delivery in a previous pregnancy, the higher the likelihood in a subsequent pregnancy of stillbirth. And if two of the placental conditions are associated and are found in, in one pregnancy, then the risk of stillbirth is even higher. Yeah. So, for example, if the baby is not just preterm, but also small for gestational age. Yeah. And therefore, we cannot pretend that that risk is not there, you see, in a subsequent pregnancy. There is a level of risk. But like any other consultation we should be having as clinicians with parents when we see them in a clinic in a subsequent pregnancy, that's the whole point of antenatal care. So we are there not to frame their pregnancy as a high risk, but to make sure that we support them both medically and psychologically Mm -hmm. as well with appropriate interventions to reduce that risk as close as we can to that of an average pregnancy. I see. Just sticking with the theme of reducing risk of stillbirth, the themed issue features a very interesting study which has attracted a lot of media attention. The study is called The Association Between Maternal Sleep Practices and Late Stillbirth, Findings from a Stillbirth Case Control Study, by Hazel et al. And this uh, study found that going to sleep in a supine position um, seemed to be associated with a higher risk of uh, late stillbirth as compared to uh, sleeping on the left side. I wondered if we could uh, briefly discuss uh, that study, Mr. Siasakos. This is a very important study and likely to attract a lot of publicity. And in fact, I think it is already attracting yeah. a lot of publicity for good reasons. Um, so it is the largest of its kind. Mm-hmm. And it has actually similar findings to previous studies. Uh, and the main finding is that there is an association between sleep practices and the risk of stillbirth. It is an association. And I think there is a word of caution, and we have an excellent mini commentary in the issue as well, is that... From association to causality, sometimes the distance can be long. Uh And there are several steps we need to take to make sure that we bridge that distance. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is that actually asking women and parents in general after a stillbirth uh, what their sleep practices were uh, is prone to bias. So it's prone to to recall bias, isn't it? It is. They might be more likely, we don't know, but they might be more likely to report that they went, for example, to bed sleeping on their back. I see. Because women, you see, in pregnancy might know, particularly women who have been through labor, that being on your back is not a good thing for the baby, lying on your back. Um, Now, however, as I said, that association seems to have been consistent across studies. Mm -hmm. So clearly, it's not something that should be disregarded. Mm -hmm. So whereas I think we should be cautious before we actually promote uh, public health campaigns that may terrify women or cause anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, 
Perhaps we should be focusing on studies that will help substantiate the biological plausibility of the findings. And I think you'd mentioned that in your clinical practice, you'd spoken to women who uh, felt anxious that they may have been somewhat to, to blame after a stillbirth or were worried about sleeping on their side. Clearly, we, we, we don't want to cause that sort of anxiety to our patients. Or the opposite. Women who were not never actually went to sleep on their back and still had a stillbirth, mm. and they think, okay, so that, that study means nothing to yeah, me. Yeah, I see. So you see, as with any public health campaigns, we need to be very careful how we design them. Yeah. And I think we do have actually the previous great example of uh, sudden... Uh, death in infancy, Mm -hmm. where the public health campaigns were actually instrumental in reducing rates. Uh, But I think we would have to be a bit more cautious with stillbirth, because there might be other areas that we should be addressing resources to, um, including research to to examine the biological plausibility of the associations found in this specific study. And the mini-commentary on on that study makes the point that we already know about potent, powerful risk factors uh, which uh, certainly increase the risk of stillbirth, which um, which uh, st- still need properly addressing, such as uh, obesity, for example. And smoking. And smoking actually is already being addressed with an intervention mm-hmm. in the UK. Perhaps it should be addressed globally. Obesity has been the target of interventions uh, across the globe, but again, not very successfully. And if I go beyond obesity, there is also a problem with excessive gestational weight gain, so weight gain in pregnancy, um, particularly for women who are already obese. And we, we know that's a very strong risk factor for stillbirth. And that is my concern, whether we should be cautious about diverting resources to areas that may have less of an impact compared to obesity and uh, gestational weight gain. Thank you. Um, just sticking with the topic of efforts to try and reduce stillbirth uh, uh, in the third trimester, I wondered if we could discuss, again briefly, uh, Professor Gordon-Smith's um, interesting commentary on the so far disappointing results from implementing universal third trimester ultrasound screening. Um, he references a French study which seems to show that um, there's an increase in perinatal morbidity and mortality following the introduction of universal third trimester ultrasounds. And exactly, so referring back to this excellent uh, commentary by Professor Smith, is that perhaps we should be actually targeting our efforts to optimizing care based on what we already know. Mm-hmm. And I will actually cite an example, is aspirin. So using aspirin in subsequent pregnancy. So for women who have ex- already experienced a placental condition, mm-hmm. preeclampsia or growth restriction, and whether aspirin is recommended and actually consistently used in future pregnancies. Because aspirin is a very cheap intervention and it does have a potential for significant mm-hmm. impact. But I'm not sure whether all women who are eligible for aspirin are given aspirin in the UK and uh, across the globe. That's one example. Another example is that even though it is really, really important to, to, uh, to conduct more research to understand how to prevent stillbirths, uh, we also need to learn from those stillbirths that happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about improving care afterwards, but it's also learning lessons from those stillbirths. So reviewing cases with stillbirth and in fact with perinatal death in general and trying to understand the causes, particularly when substandard care was involved, and how to improve on that care. So overall, to conclude, I think uh, 
in many ways, the themed issue has similar messages to Professor Smith's paper. It's, it's about what we know already, and I think the themed issue is providing an excellent summary of what is already happening. So what are the causes for stillbirth globally, what is being done well, and what is being done not as well as it could and should be done. Um, but also, where do we go next? Mm-hmm. And where do we go next in terms of changing our practice, in terms of performing more research, but also in terms of understanding from those stillbirths that do happen so that we can prevent uh, any more from happening. Mr. Siasakos, thanks ever so much for your time and uh, thank you for downloading this uh, BJOG podcast. I urge our listeners to seek out this special themed issue on stillbirth. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.